as we scatter together this year for our annual Good Friday service, we're finding ourselves in the midst of a global pandemic. Kentucky alone has over 1,400 people who have been infected with this novel coronavirus and 79 people who have died. But the numbers in other states haven't been near as modest as Kentucky's have been. The CDC reports that over 427,000 people thus far have been infected nationwide and that over 14,000 people have died. And at, the, at this point, every state of the union is implicated in this. On Wednesday, the World Health Organization reported that there have been 1.3 million people worldwide infected and nearly 80,000 people who have died from this plague. Even though this is a staggering number of people, we know that these numbers are likely lower than the reality because of our inability to test everyone who has been sick. And this plague is not some far-off thing affecting some distant people. This has affected all of our lives at this point. Some of us have already contracted the virus and healed. But there are others that are still struggling mightily. As I speak to you tonight, Hannah Jones, 21-year-old daughter of one of my colleagues at Southern Seminary, is on a ventilator at a Louisville hospital and waiting for an experimental treatment of plasma from a coronavirus survivor. Earlier this week, they put her on that ventilator to keep her from going into cardiac arrest. We should be praying for Hannah. So no, this disease isn't just a dreadful report about something happening on the other side of the world. This plague is here among us, afflicting us. And that is what is before us as we scatter together for this Good Friday service. There's this menacing shadow, that thing that no one wants to think about, that thing that we would like to think is perhaps further from us than it actually is. That thing is death. I know I'm not the only one who has been contemplating the possibility of this situation growing more dire than it already is. I'm not the only one who has contemplated what it would be like to get this disease and whether I would survive if I did get it. In short, I'm not the only one who has been forced to think about death. Hebrews 9.27 says this, And as it and as it is, appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I know all of the thousands of things that God purposes to do for our good through this trial. But I do believe that we can say some things for certain, and I think that we can say at least one thing that he is doing through this trial of our nation and indeed of our, our, this, this congregation. God wants us to turn from the daily distractions that keep our minds fixed on trivial things, from the myriad things that, that we access and that distract us from ultimate reality. He wants our minds trained on eternity, and the best way to do that is to make us think about death about our own death, whenever that may be, and about whether we are prepared for it. 
Death is a fact. Absent the Lord's return, you won't avoid it. It will eventually find you. And the question you'll have to ask and answer between now and the time that it does find you is what are you going to do about it? The sad truth is that there is really nothing that you can do about it. You cannot deliver yourself from God's judgment on sin. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. Death is God's penalty for sin. And because all people are sinners, including you and including me, there's no, none of us are going to escape it. You cannot deliver yourself from death. You cannot undo death. Yours or anyone else's. It is a judgment that you undergo with no hope beyond it if left to yourself. The good news is that Good Friday and Easter are all about what God has done to undo death for his people. God sent his very own son into the world to undergo the judgment that we deserve because of sin. And he took it upon himself. There is a resurrection coming, but that resurrection is only possible because of the reconciliation that Jesus accomplished for us in his death. So what I want to do this evening is to meditate with you on two verses about the death of Jesus. And I want you, even at home, to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 and verses 24 and 25. Romans chapter 3 and verses 24 and 25. There's a commentator, really famous commentator on Romans named C.E.B. Cranfield, and he has said this about this text. He says that this text gives us the innermost meaning of the cross as far as Paul understands it. If you want to understand what Jesus' death means, why he dies, and what it accomplishes for us, you need to look no further than these verses. Now, according to Romans chapter 3 and verses 24 and 25, Jesus died to accomplish at least three things. Number one, to justify. Number two, to redeem. And number three, to propitiate. Jesus died to justify, to redeem, and to propitiate. So why did Jesus die? Well, the first thing is to justify. Everybody look at verse 24. Paul says, All who believe are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, over the centuries, there has been much debate over what Paul means by saying that believers are justified. Now, to justify someone means to make them righteous. But the debate has been about what does it mean and in what sense are they made righteous whenever they are justified? Roman Catholics believe that being made righteous, being justified, involves a progressive infusion of righteousness through participation in the sacraments of the church, especially baptism and the Eucharist. The Roman Catholic Catechism says it this way, Justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. And so in that tradition, justification is a progressive thing that involves the sanctification of the individual. 
But Protestants, like us, at least since the time of Martin Luther, have generally disagreed with that um, understanding of justification. Justification is not an infused reality, but an imputed reality. Justification is not about making you righteous morally, but about making you righteous judicially. It has to do with your standing before the judgment seat of God. It's about being guilty or being not guilty before God. If you are guilty, then you can expect judgment and condemnation whenever you die. If you are not guilty, then you can expect life and peace on the other side of death. It all depends on this verdict that God renders. But how can anyone be justified, be made righteous judicially? How could they be found not guilty? How could they have that verdict when they are certainly morally guilty of sin? Some of you remember an awful case that happened here in Louisville back in the late 1980s. There was a man named Mel Ignato who had a girlfriend who, had, who was found murdered. And Ignato was the prime suspect. It took a while, but the state was finally able to marshal its case and indict and prosecute Ignato. But as this case progressed, the state failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Ignato did it. And so the jury brought back a not guilty verdict against him or for him. During the trial, Ignato had to sell his house just to fund his defense. And about six months after Ignato walked free from the courtroom, there was a worker in Ignato's old house pulling up carpet in the hallway. And when he pulled up the carpet, he discovered an air conditioner vent. And inside that vent, he found a plastic bag with some film in it. And on the film were photographs that an accomplice had taken of Ignato assaulting and murdering his ex-girlfriend. And it proved beyond any reasonable doubt that he was, in fact, the one who had committed this heinous crime. But there was one problem. We have this thing in our laws called double jeopardy in our legal system. That means that once you've been tried and declared not guilty for a crime, you can never be tried for that crime again. So even though there was photo proof of Ignato's guilt, he was let go scot-free for that particular crime. Now think back to the original jury verdict over Mel Ignato. Was Ignato morally guilty when he stood before the jury and they said not guilty? Yes, he was morally guilty of that crime. But once the judge read the verdict, he became legally not guilty. In other words, in the eyes of the court, his guilt was not counted against him. He was not under condemnation for that crime, even though he was guilty of it. That is what justification is like in the Bible. It is a legal declaration of, in God's courtroom. We are declared righteous even though we are not morally righteous. God treats us as righteous even though we are not righteous. Christ's own righteousness is reckoned to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Notice what Paul says. He says, we are justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift, it says in verse 24. We can't earn this righteous standing in God's courtroom. Jesus earned it for us in his death on the cross and in his righteous life up to the cross. We can only receive this gift by faith. It only comes to people by faith. And then when you believe in Christ, there is a not guilty verdict placed over you. Actually, it's better than not guilty. It's a righteous verdict placed over you. And it happens at the moment of faith. So why did Jesus die? He died to justify sinners, to make them righteous before the judgment seat of God. So Jesus died to justify, but secondly, he also he died to redeem. Everybody look at verse 24 again. All who believe are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The key word here is redemption. There are some people who believe that redemption simply means to be liberated or to be set free. It does mean those things, but it actually means more than just liberation or freedom. In Paul's day, this term was often used to refer to the freeing of slaves. But that freedom came with a cost. A slave couldn't just be, wouldn't normally just be let free. Um, once a price was paid, then the slave could be set free. Free. So redemption actually refers to being set, set free at a price. It means liberation through payment. That's what redemption is all about. And so, you know, a lot of people know and have heard, if they've read the Bible, that salvation is free. And they view salvation as free because it didn't cost anything. But when we say salvation is free, we don't really mean that it didn't cost anything. We mean it didn't cost sinners anything. It, it did cost something. Somebody paid the debt of eternal wrath that you and I owed to God. The one who paid it is Jesus. It's a gift by his grace to you and me, sinners, but it's costly to the one who's providing it. And notice that it says that this redemption is in Christ Jesus. This payment was taken care of by what Jesus did for us on the cross. This is the meaning in part of Jesus' death. Redemption, being set free from a debt of wrath that we owed to God. If you think that you can ever earn your favor with God, you need to think again. There is a payment due because of your sin, but you don't have the resources to pay that debt. You cannot liberate yourself. God has to do it for you, which is exactly what he has provided in his son. He paid the ultimate price for your freedom. And now you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, the Bible says. So redemption is all about being set free at a cost, at no cost to you, but at the, the most enormous cost imaginable. To Jesus. So why did Jesus die? He died to justify. He died to redeem. And finally, he died to propitiate. Everybody look at verse 25. 
It's talking about Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. The key word here, obviously, is propitiation, which is one of those churchy words that we sometimes hear but don't often think about. It's sacrificial language, indicating that Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins. But what exactly does this sacrifice accomplish? There are some people who say that the sacrifice merely led to our sins being taken away from us. So it's just about forgiveness, the remission of sins. And so they say that that's what that word um, in the original Greek really means. It's just about being forgiven. God takes our sins away. That's true. God takes our sins away. That's a part of what this word indicates. Um, But it's not the only thing that this term indicates. It actually communicates more than that. It means that this term means that Jesus endured God's wrath against sin when he was on the cross in order to make God propitious towards us, in order to make him kindly disposed towards us. If you've read the rest of the book of Romans, you know that it says that God is storing up wrath against those who are sinners. He's storing it up. And this word is saying that God's wrath against sin has been redirected away from the sinners who deserve it towards a substitute, Jesus. To put it another way, God took all of the wrath that would have taken us an eternity in hell to endure, and he poured it out on the Son of God in the moment of the cross. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. When Jesus died on the cross, God set Jesus forth as a propitiation by his blood, which means by his death. And we receive that not by earning it, not by being worth it. We receive it only by believing, by faith, by trusting in Jesus and what he has done for us. When we trust in him, that's what connects us to this substitutionary work on our behalf. Why does God do this? Why does there have to be a sacrifice? Why can't he just forgive us apart from the death of Christ? Paul says in this verse exactly why he does it. Paul says that he does it to show God's righteousness. But here's the question. Why would God need to show his righteousness? Well, Paul explains why. Look at the next clause. Because in the forbearance, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What's going on here? Well, Paul's just reading his Bible. He knows that there's been example after example in the Old Testament of God forgiving sinners who don't deserve it. And this creates a problem for Paul. But his questions, Paul's questions, his problems, aren't our kinds of problems. The, The questions he asks are often not the kinds of questions that you and I ask. We trouble ourselves over this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? 
That kind of question doesn't ever really trouble Paul at all because he knows that there are, there are no good people. He knows Romans, what he just wrote in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There, there are no good people, so it's, it's impossible for bad things to happen to good people except for one person. He's the only, Jesus is the only good person to whom bad things happen. But it has, that doesn't apply to anyone else because we're all sinners. So what the question that troubles Paul and that is behind what he's saying here in Romans 3 is this is, the, this is the question that troubles him. It's not why do bad things happen to good people. It's why is God good to bad people? That's the question that's animating his argument here. The question that Paul is trying to answer is that one. Because every time God forgives a sinner, it calls into question God's justice. Think back to Melignato for a moment. Imagine if the jury had come back with a guilty verdict instead of a not guilty verdict. And yet, when the judge received the guilty verdict from the jury, instead of just reading guilty from the slip of paper that he received from the jury, what if he said not guilty? even though he knew that the jury had said that he was guilty. He's got guilty written on the paper, but he declares not guilty in spite of what the jury says. If any judge in Louisville ever did something like that, that guy would be bounced out of his seat in a nanosecond. Everyone would be outraged at a judge who knew a person who committed a heinous crime and knew that judge knew that they were declared guilty by the jury, and then that judge declared him not guilty, just by fiat anyway. That's the situation that Paul sees every time he opens his Bible and sees God forgiving someone, forgiving sinners. How could a good God allow evil people to go free like that? If we wouldn't tolerate a human judge doing that, how could you tolerate the divine judge doing that? Do you remember what happened when David, King David, sinned with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel? David sees a woman bathing on her roof. He decides that he must have this woman, so he sends for her. He commits adultery with her. He gets her pregnant. She's married to one of his faithful servants, Uriah the Hittite, and yet he does all of this. He tries to cover up his sin by calling Uriah home to be with his wife. Uriah won't go home while his comrades are at war. So David arranges for Uriah to be murdered. Uriah dies. And then as far as David is concerned, the cover-up is complete. So David thinks. Nathan the prophet comes to David. He tells a parable and indicts David. And he confronts David. After David has taken Bathsheba to be his wife, and David thinks that he's covered up all of his sin, Nathan points his finger at David and says, Thou art the man. And then as soon as Nathan indicts David for being guilty of adultery and murder, David repents. He turns from his sin. And then Nathan says this in 2 Samuel 12, 13. He says, the Lord has taken away your sin. Just like that. Adultery and murder and 
God just takes away his sin. If any judge in Louisville were to have done that, we would demand that he be unseated from his judgeship. And yet God is doing this all over the place in the Old Testament. And so this is Paul's question, and it ought to be our question. How can God be a wise and good judge while forgiving sinners? We look in the Bible and we find page after page of God forgiving sinners. He just does away with their sin. How can God do that and still be just? It's like he's been handed the guilty verdict by the jury and he just says, meh, not guilty. Shouldn't he be impeached for that? This is what Good Friday is all about. That apparent problem is only apparent because this text says that the cross of Jesus solves that problem of God's justice. God's righteous judgment falls down and demonstrates his own justice. But he is taking that judgment upon himself instead of putting it on sinners who deserve it. That's what's happening at the cross. All of the wrath and judgment that would have taken an eternity in hell for us to endure, to demonstrate God's justice. God is demonstrating that justice and pouring it out on his very own son. We often say that Christ died for us, but in another sense, we have to believe that Christ died for God. He died for us in the sense that his death makes our salvation possible. But he died for God in the sense that his death proves the holiness and integrity of our great judge and king, God Almighty. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once described what Jesus' death means. And he described it this way. He said this. He said, can you now think what a vast aggregate of misery there would have been in the suffering of all of God's people if they had been punished through all eternity? And recollect that Christ had to suffer an equivalent for all the hells of all his redeemed. I can never express that thought better than by using those oft-repeated words. It seemed as if hell were put into his cup. He seized it. And at one tremendous draft of love, he drank damnation dry. So there was nothing left of all the pangs and miseries of hell for his people ever to endure. I say not that he suffered the same, but he did endure an equivalent for all this. And God gave the satisfaction for all the sins of all his people. And consequently gave him an equivalent for all their punishment. Now, can ye dream, can ye guess the great redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ? You know, because all of this is true... The curse of death that we see all around us doesn't have to be the final word over us. Christ's death accomplishes justification, redemption, propitiation for everyone who believes in him. You know, right now in our nation, everyone is desperate for a vaccine, desperate for some medication that will inoculate us from this death that seems to be taking over, not just here, but across the world. 
Everyone is desperate for a vaccine. But you know what the truth of the matter is? The vaccine only delays something that you can't avoid. Death. The vaccine does not fix humanity's biggest problem. Death. The only one who has ever fixed humanity's biggest problem is the Lord Jesus. Because in his death, he took the punishment that we deserved so that death doesn't have to have the last word over us. We can be reconciled to God and we can inherit a new heavens and a new earth and have forgiveness of sins pronounced over us right now by faith in Jesus. That's what Jesus' death accomplishes for us. And it is the one thing that you and I need more than anything on Good Friday and on every day. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would use your word to save and to sanctify your people. Help us to glory in what you have accomplished for us on the cross. Help us to worship. Help us to feel it. Help us to be ever grateful for it. And help us to bless you always because of it. We love you, Father. And we thank you for the Son who became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thank you, Father. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.